Tangent Tank, Solving the Housing Crisis, a Tangent Original Series. This Tangent Tank dives into the world of prop tech companies tackling the housing affordability and supply crisis. Join our panel of judges, Jeffrey Berman, partner at Camber Creek, Zach Ahrens, co-founder at Metaprop, and prop tech entrepreneur Edward Cohen, as we ask the tough questions and challenge each founder and evaluate their startups based on innovation, potential impact, and scalability. You'll listen firsthand from the founders themselves as they share their stories of determination and resilience. 1.8 billion people around the world do not have adequate housing. Housing affordability reached an all-time historic low in the US as over 10 million renters spend over 50% of their income on housing. Amidst these challenges, there is hope. Across the world, we're seeking startups that leverage technology and talent to tackle this crisis head-on. If you are a passionate founder, please apply by emailing your company's deck or video to tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hey there, welcome to Tangent. I am Jeffrey Berman. Today we have Brent Waras, CEO at BotBuilt, revolutionizing housing construction with flexible robots. Hi, Brent. Welcome to Tangent Tank. Hi there, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Brent, you and the BotBuilt team are on a mission to end the housing crisis and homelessness through robot-based construction. But you didn't start there. 22 years ago, after 9-11, you had a calling and you decided to join the army. Brent, what's your story that led you to this moment? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. So for me personally, I have kind of been raised in a very, I guess, patriotic household would probably be the best way to put it, put it lightly anyway. Uh, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. My older brother, Chad, served in the first Gulf War back when it was cool to be in Iraq uh, in the 90s. And so for me, it was just one of those things that as soon as the towers fell, I said to myself, I have to join the army. I'll be honest, I was in a band at the time. And then shortly thereafter, I started my first business. And so we went into kind of a, from Merrill Lynch into an RIA business. And you know how it is, you get working on the grind. And I started to have, you know, a young family. And I just kind of put off that whole military dream thing for a little while, built up a couple of businesses. They were very successful. It was a lot of fun. Did that in a SaaS company, kind of a web-based CRM in the early aughts, which of course was a, a novel concept back then. Um, but it was about 06, 07, we were selling off one of the properties. And my wife just said, hey, you know, we're doing okay. You said early on when the towers fell that you wanted to join the army, let's go take the girls and have an adventure. And it's something I've always felt called to do. So I signed up for the U.S. Army, got to work within special operations for about a decade, uh, working alongside literally the, the coolest, bravest, most amazing men and women one could ever hope to meet in life, including some of the best leaders in our great nation. And it was just the honor of a lifetime. It's something that, you know, it makes no sense until you're in it. You know, combat is obviously hell, but being in it with brothers and sisters that you would literally die for is quite an amazing experience. And it's something that made me appreciate, you know, the true credo of, of freeing the oppressed and liberating those who live under any type of circumstance that isn't freedom. It, it made it more than just a job. It really made it something that I wake up every day to, to do and accomplish. And so for me personally, it's still something that's in my blood. Uh, unfortunately, I had a commander at my retirement ceremony call me the world's worst living parachutist. So I got uh, blown up a couple of times in Afghanistan, and then I had two catastrophic uh, parachute crashes, uh, which ended up breaking my neck and my back at one point, and then gave me epilepsy. So I had to get out of the service, uh, out of uniform anyway. 
And I must tell you, it's something that even in spite of the injuries and in spite of the, you know, the long road to recovery it's been, I miss it every day, miss it every stinking day. Uh, and not because it's like this amazing, you know, institution, but simply because the, the men and women you're fighting with are just incredible human beings and the people that you're liberating on a human scale, uh, you learn love and compassion in a way that, that cannot normally be expressed uh, with the words that I am capable of using. Well, that sounds amazing. First of all, thank you for your service. And thanks for the paycheck, man. You paid me to jump out of planes and race cars. I'm happy. <laughs> well, it's it, it's nice to hear stories like those, even when you've had to combat, literally combat enemy fire and frankly, personal tragedy. So it, that's a pretty incredible story. How did that turn into an entrepreneurial career and into what you're building today? For me personally, entrepreneurship was kind of always in the deck. Uh, my parents raised me that way. You know, I'm sure a lot of you guys probably grew up like, you know, playing catch with your dad or, you know, learning how to do things with your mom. And, and I did those things, but they also taught me stuff like how to optimize your business taxes and, you know, <laughs> how to properly manage employees before HR tech was everywhere. So for me, it was just in the bloodstream. And I think a lot of what I did in special operations even was based upon my entrepreneurial mind. So a lot of it was developing new technologies, developing new ways to enable the mission and enable the operators to do what they need to do, uh, which was a lot of fun. And what brought me to this particular endeavor in particular was, uh, I guess, living at Fort Bragg. So I was out in Pinehurst, North Carolina. My cousin married this guy named Barrett, and I've known him for, you know, better part of two decades now. He's just a very brilliant, gifted guy. He's got his PhD in robotics that he did at Duke. He was teaching at Duke at the time, and he was always pitching me different robot ideas that he had. And I think his intention was, well, I know his intention was because he would say it, for me to leave the, the mission that I was on and go lead one of his companies because he likes to robot. I like the people. It's a good combination there. And having had some successful exits already, he knew that, you know, I've got a track record that could help him out. But the mission set for his robot ideas were never aligned with what I personally wanted to embark upon until uh, one day he came to me while I was overworking at JSOC and said, hey, what if we tackled the housing problem you harp on about? And for me personally, it's just one of those things that I remember being four years old and learning what homelessness was. And it literally broke my brain. It still kind of does. It's just a simple issue of we need to do better in building affordable and attainable housing. And we've got a labor crisis, which means something has to augment that. And so I told him flat out, like, hey, got it. But there's a lot of automation in construction already. It's very expensive. I've done this research before. I've looked at investing in these companies before. Uh, what What is your idea that makes it different? And he said, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to buy like robots off eBay. We're going to use software and this neural net I'm building to change the way those robots are used. And that intrigued me enough that we did about a year and a half of research. Then finally in late 2020, early 21, started a bot built in earnest uh, with the idea that flexible and mass customization is really the, the key to maintaining a good solid and what I would consider healthy market of choice and abundance while at the same time enabling more of the, I guess, uh, uh, lower skilled, lower end users to use robotic systems without making it this giant complicated mess in which you need, you know, a PhD to operate. So that, that's really where the, the kind of traction came into. I was at the time when we started up, I was doing consulting for the DOD, uh, you know, in a civilian outfit, not the same as being in the uniform, not the same as, you know, being on the objective, so to speak. So uh, he didn't have to sell quite as hard, but it's definitely a mission set that was very close to my heart. How long ago was that? We were talking, I guess, in 18, well, in 16 is the first time you really pitched me an idea. Uh, I ended up investing in a different company that was in food robotics uh, for that idea, because it's, it's a darn fine idea. It's just I didn't want to 
leave the national mission set for, you know, changing the way the world flips burgers with robots. That just didn't sound like me. What company was that? Uh, that was Miso Robotics. Interesting. Yeah, there were a few of them. I, I did a small angel investment many years ago into a company that also was supposed to change how you flip burgers, actually. That's why I asked you. Yeah. I mean, being a fry cook sucks, right? Those jobs are, you know, very hard to come by. I don't know if you've gone to a fast food restaurant recently, but the wait times have definitely increased because of it. So it's an issue uh, for it's a it's a good idea. It's the right idea for robotics to help out and enable human workers to live healthier and safer lives. But it's it's not something I really want to be a part of. I think Miso's you know a good company. I like robots. I like Fat Burger. It seems to make sense to me. Uh, but <laughs> it definitely wasn't something I wanted to lead. So Brent, certainly the bot built team is something we're gonna dive into more deep because I think the the cohesion you have between the three founders, how complementary you are, is something worth discussing. But before then, talk about your business in terms of how is it different than other modular construction solutions in the market? How are you building these homes and who are you selling them to? For us, really the the crux of the matter comes down to how you're addressing the culture of building and how you're addressing the true problem set. So you know, anyone that's been through like Y Combinator like we did or or any other type of basic business instruction, you need to understand the problem set deeply before you just think that you've got a solution. Because a lot of folks will sell a solution that doesn't really have a problem. So it just kind of wanes out. Uh, us personally, what we wanted to do was just take a look at the way that we build and the mass of the market, especially in residential, is using dimensional lumber. And the way that they are building is typical framing, which is great. Uh, however, there's a huge disconnect between the automated principles that apply currently, a lot of the solutions that were on the market, and the way that builders operate. So when you look at builders, they have, you know, maybe they have 20 plans total if they're a larger builder, but it has 600,000 permutations, right? So they've got all these options and choices. Those are a nightmare for antiquated robotic lines that, you know, are based upon technologies that were built in around the automotive sector. And by that, I mean the old Henry Ford adage, you can have any color as long as it's black, right? It's all about speed and efficiency, building the same thing over and over and over again, which means as Katera learned the hard way to reprogram those lines is a hugely expensive endeavor. And to take on that type of expense really makes the bottom line a little too red for most builders to tolerate in a game when they're dealing with margins that fluctuate based on market factors that are often out of the control. And a lot of the times those builders also don't have access to, you know, we love to talk about BIM and all these cool 3D technologies, but a lot of builders just have access to the basic PDFs that their architects give them. So we started with a plan to take basic, like the bottom line that anyone could have access to as a builder. And that's a PDF plan. And then we use our own proprietary software to create from that plan a 3D model. That 3D model literally tells us where, and this is just for framing, where every stud goes, where every nail goes, where every piece of sheathing goes. And it tells us the exact cost of all of those items. So up front, we don't have to deal with negotiating with lumber yards or anything like that. I know the exact stud count, the exact plate count, headers, windows, all of that is given to us in minutes by our software system. And then with that takeoff list, we can order it there. And then what's kind of cool about our robots is we do things a little bit differently. So the tooling that we use is all custom. We have 3D printers and machinist tools here. We build our own tools for these robots, but we're buying literally off of eBay what you would consider basic six axis arms on a seventh axis track. These are things that have come from the automotive lines, you know, for uh, for reference, not to get too nerdy on y'all, but for BMW at their Sumter, South Carolina plant, when that robotic arm is out of 0.2 millimeters of spec, that robotic arm is no longer good to them and they put it on the market for pennies on the dollars. 
for us, that's plenty of spec. I'm, I'm cool with like 0.3 you know, mils out of spec. So we buy those things for cheap and then we put custom tooling so these robots can pick up different sets of tools. And then we enable them with computer vision systems that allow them just to pick up from lumber bunk. So you don't have to pre-cut lumber and cull it and make sure all of these things happen. The robots can actually cull, pick, cut, place, and build their panels on their own without human intervention because we aren't programming them where to go. We use a generative AI product that we've built basically that uses inverse kinematic systems to understand motion planning. So the robots know what the panel has to look like. They know what points they have to move. They schedule out what those movements have to be in. So there's an order to it, right? Especially if you're doing with tons of kings and jacks and all these studs packed together for custom tools to, to operate within. And then they begin building. So the idea here is to take away a lot of the, you know, the front end engineering work that four to eight weeks of just re-engineering a plan into a panelized set. And then we take those panels, we just ship them right to the job site. And for the customers that we've built for so far, they're going down from anywhere from, you know, five to 35 days of framing to about two and a half to five hours to frame those same single family homes right now, uh, which is a huge victory for them, not just on time, but obviously the value of that time and interest and for any big builder that, that plays the game, right? The idea is to take it from horizontal dev to handing keys to a to an owner as quickly as possible to take that off your books, shift that property's value up and move forward. And so we just want to shorten that time and enable the framers to have a better life. So you're taking I Ikea's playbook or Lego's playbook and just putting it into home construction. Yeah, I, I don't want to be dragged into Swedish or Danish court, but yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and just, just for our American listeners, 0.2 millimeters equals... 0.0078 inches. So that sounds very precise. You just headed off all seven Americans that do math from sending you a very angry email. So we'll, we'll play. Thank you. Do you feel like you're operating your business blindly during this new digital revolution? Are you wasting time on tedious data tasks instead of focusing on growing your business? Crex software makes it easy for commercial real estate players to do complex tasks, eliminate manual errors, and optimize your operations. By automating repetitive processes, you can save time, reduce costs, and enhance productivity, allowing you to focus on what truly matters, growing your business. Extract data from Yardi, Salesforce, and more, and experience the power of seamless workflow automation with Crex. But wait, there's more. Gain actionable insights and unlock visuals into your business with Crex Analytics. Crex provides you with comprehensive real estate data and analytics dashboards that empower you to monitor KPIs, track trends, and identify opportunities for improvement, all at your fingerprints. Make data-driven decisions that drive your business forward. To learn more about how Crex software can transform your data management and streamline your operations, visit CrexSoftware.com. That's C-R-E-X software.com. Contact Crex today to schedule a personalized demo and take the first step towards unlocking the full potential of your data. Where are you guys today? Talk to us about the deployment. What does it look like? Yeah, so today we are in two different uh, factory subs. We have an R&D facility in Durham, North Carolina. And then uh, uncreatively, but just down the street, also in Durham, North Carolina, is our larger uh, stage production facility. So we just opened that up and just put in the robots uh, over the last couple of months here. And what the idea is, is for us to have a couple of models going right now. And that's the hub and spoke model, I guess you would say, for the actual plants themselves. We've built uh, seven going on our eighth home this week, I guess just starting to build over the last six, seven months here, which has been great for us. 
but really for us, it's about testing out the robots that we've done with the software iteration over the last, you know, two and a half years, let's call it, and now building our staging facility down the road is there. The whole thesis, though, is built on a lighter cap table. So instead of buying, you know, five to $15 million gigantic lines to take up 600 linear feet, our two robotic arms, and just for the listeners at home that can't see any visualization right now, the two robotic arms operate in a little 30 by 30 cell working together uh, to build out panels. So it's a much lighter stack. So you can have multiple lines in the same size factory. So if we're within 400 miles of a job site and I can find an abandoned warehouse somewhere, like an old, you know, destitute area, we can put our robots right there and ship them right to the job site in a very, very easy, much less capital intensive model. And so right now we just started up with our second factory and uh, we're going to be doing a quick little uh, fundraise session here over the next two months to build out a third facility and really ramp up production because, you know, surprise, the building market is hot right now. And the orders that we have are, are really insurmountable for the, <laughs> the number of teams that we currently have. Good problem to have. You mentioned Katera, the construction technology company that raised well over a billion dollars from SoftBank. Uh, Three billion total. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Three billion only. What mistakes can we learn from them and how are you avoiding them? Well, first of all, I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on Katera because they were very generous with their time uh, after their you know, restructuring or demise, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we met with several of their executives and a lot of their engineering team. And really did, you know, I, I hate to call it this, but this is what I've always called it in business is just the postmortem, right? Like what, what made you die? Because as a business owner, you ask, how do we die? Because you want to see that in your pro forma. You want to be able to avoid it. They were very good with their time about telling us how they, A, didn't create a technological stack that really had any, I guess, cohesion across locations. And what that does is when you're upgrading one section, you're not necessarily upgrading all sections, which means you might have a factory that lags. The second thing they did was they bought anything they could, as far as automation goes, without thinking through the, you know, how does this pencil out? So if you buy a $15 million line that takes 40 people to operate, and you're just going to be building one large construction project every seven to eight months, your ROI timetable is gigantic. And that's how you burn through $3 billion in capital. Uh, but my main takeaway anyway, and, and this might be through the lens of, you know, the DOD, is they really didn't take the time to understand the culture of construction, first and foremost. And they really came in, I don't know if you remember this, but they just came into the industry saying, this is how it will be done in the future. And this is how you will adopt us. And you will live by the Katera way. And surprise, uh, construction writ large said, uh, nope. And they did not get to do what they wanted. They had to, what we'll call acquire their way through the industry. And they did a decent flip of that. But again, not doing the math to pencil out and then not meeting the culture where it currently is and just trying to impose their will did not work out well for them. And so for us personally, you know, we're working within the culture that's available. We're not sitting here trying to introduce totally new materials or totally new methodologies. All of the largest builders in America right now are using panels. <laughs> All of them are wanting more panels tomorrow. So there's just not enough panel factories out there. And we're not here to, you know, displace workers. We just are literally working on a labor shortage that is, you know, choose your number of the day, five to seven million laborers short on the carpentry side. That's a big shortfall. And the other thing that I'll just throw out there that I know I get on a little bit of the soapbox about this, but you during the like, let's go 2013 to 2017, we would lose in Afghanistan on average about 35 uniform service members a year. That is a tragedy in housing and construction per OSHA. We're losing like 350 people a year. So you are 10 times more likely to die building a house than you are going to the army. And like respectfully to my wife and kids, I signed up for this crap. Like if I died, that's part of the, the, the game. 
But when they're going to frame a house, they're literally just trying to earn an income for their family. And using a panelized system that's much safer, much less cutting on the job site, much less exposure to those hazards, uh, really makes a difference in the quality of life that we can enable rather than just taking from or imposing will upon. So I, I hear all that. Talk to me about the costs. The bottom line is the bottom line in construction, right? So that's the other thing. For me, it has to pencil out because if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And there's a big differentiator when you're buying different robotic lines to actually have robots that you can buy on eBay for cheap and then run them at, I'm not kidding, about $2 an hour on electricity charges. And because they're actually going through their own planning, I'm not paying a ton of engineers to sit there and hand jam this robotic line into exactly where the points it needs to go to. So the costs are a lot lower uh, than using either traditional automation or a factory that uses human labor and requires, you know, 35, 50 people that are just in a warehouse rather than on a dangerous job site. That's that's really not a cost savings there. So for us, we're able to come in at a, a much lower price point, uh, primarily because we're using much less money in our capex. So rather than you know having to put in panels that are you know 20 to 40 percent higher in cost just because they're built with robotic lines. Uh, we can sit here and and let the builders operate at essentially the same cost, if not, not maybe an 8 to 12% premium. Uh, but that premium is more than worth their time because they're saving that, you know, two to four weeks of job site time. And they're getting their framing inspection done, which is huge uh, with robotic precision. So they're not wasting more time waiting on a municipality to come back out and re-inspect that framing because it failed for some you know, just basic human error on that job site. Everything is QAQC here before it's even shipped to the job site, uh, meaning that they don't have to worry. So you're essentially creating a digitally enabled slash robotic home builder, right? Correct. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a slight tangent here. You're a Y Combinator company. Yes. That means you probably raised money at, at an absurd valuation. Oh, just, just insane. Right. So- Part of the problem with Katera was they were building a modular housing company. And I remember some of my friends who'd invested in the company who told me I didn't know anything about real estate and didn't know anything about venture because Katera was going to be the biggest thing in the world. And I said, well, modular housing has been around for a long time and just need to see the folks in Pennsylvania who perfected it. Katera wasn't doing anything, all respect to all the hardworking people that worked there, but they weren't doing anything really revolutionary. I understand the utility of what you're building. And it looks really slick, but can you deliver a venture scale return as you continue to need raising money? How how do you square? And again, I don't know what your valuation is. I don't I don't I don't know anything about that. I mean, I guess I could look it up on on PitchBook. But talk to me about the value prop from an investor from the investor side, given the market that Zach and I are currently that we find ourselves in, we're two of the folks that have a reputation for being sensitive to valuations because we want our investors to actually make money. It might sound weird when you when you have funds where the general partners don't really invest their own money, there's a heck of a lot of a misalignment and that means that bad investments are made. My partners and I don't do that. We have a lot with our investors and I can and I can tell you Zach's the same way. You're building something that that has potential to change an industry but there are a lot of really successful home builders that are making a lot of money doing things exactly the same way they've been doing. And a number of them are our investors. So I'm curious, do you want to compete with the Stanley Martins of the world? Or do you think to yourself, you know, I want to prove out this model and then get bought by the Stanley Martins of the world so they can become even more efficient? 
What's the master plan and how do you make your investors money? So our investors make money in a couple of ways. And the point you're making is a great one. When I mentor younger founders, a lot of the things I'll talk to them about is, are you a venture company? Because they don't always, you know, it, it's the sexy thing right now, right? Especially in 21, it just became this, this ubiquitous term, like I'm in tech, therefore I should be a venture-backed company. When venture capital, I've always looked at it as rocket fuel. It is what you invest your money to, to make that thing just explode up. And we're willing to take losses. Obviously, we can talk about like the SAS J curve all day long, right? And robotics has what I would consider now more of a U curve. It's going to be down and deep. Uh, but the upside now is the world embraces more automation is much, much higher. And so when you're talking about venture, you've got to be talking about that seven to 10 year cycle. You've got to be talking about a hundred X return. And to make that a realistic you know, opportunity here, when you do have so many home builders that have been making money, the reality is, is that the largest home builders on earth, and especially those right here in the United States, are the ones that are now looking to technology companies like ours to enable them to fight back that labor shortage. There's a huge market for it. The goal here is to, obviously, with the, the initial hub and spoke model, just establish kind of a, a, a land and command and then move forward model. But the realistic opportunity here is for every type of builder and construction methodology to be able to use our both software side. Now, you guys know the SaaS stack on construction tech and prop tech is huge, but the, the reality is this takeoff software that we've developed is insanely valuable on its own. And then the hardware side to enable their builders and their framers and their PMs to build much more quickly and efficiently is where we're able to make a huge impact. So for us, the market landscape is gargantuan, and we're not here to necessarily work towards an acquisition. Uh, what we're really looking towards is building up a technological company that enables builders and developers uh, to do what they need to do in a much more cost-efficient and much more time-efficient manner. But what are you what are you selling into whom? So are you selling a frame? Are you a framing subcontractor? Are you a general subcontractor who self-performs on framing? Are you a tech-enabled home builder? Do you sell a robot in a box? Do you sell software to home builders? What is it that you do? And what are the actual unit economics of it? Yeah, so right now we are a framing subcontractor is the best way to look at it. We're really, we're a tech-enabled home builder. So people come to us for their framing needs and we sell them a framing package. Their framers then put those up on the job site. So let's slow down on the business model side for a second. Talk about what you're currently doing. You currently sell as you function as a framing sub and you sell to home builders who self-perform on framing or who do not self-perform on framing? Who self-perform on framing. Okay. And what do you sell them? We sell them wall framing packages. So the entire home with a panel book, with their cut list, all done as walls, shipped to the job site. Then they just stand up the walls and they're done with the framing. And it's your team of robots and humans in the factory producing the frame that then gets put on some sort of you know, intermodal transit system and ship to their job site. Is that correct? That is exactly right. Let's talk about your, your margins and the time savings. What are your customers telling you about that in terms of the value prop when you go out and sell this now, try and scale it? What are they telling you? Is two weeks of framing worth X to them on a job? Or is it really not worth that much because the parade of trades hasn't caught up and they still have to get their electrical, their HVAC, their plumbing, et 
cetera, et cetera, on the job site. So when you actually boil it down and you factor in inefficiencies vis-a-vis -vis the supply chain and the lumber yards and the lack of integration with the API on software with companies like Mickey out there, you're not actually saving much time. And therefore, how are you saving them actual money? So the money savings comes in a few ways, but I think you touch on a few things. So let's let's go through a few tangents that all get to the core of where the actual savings come from, right? Uh, first and foremost, that whole like stack of trades that comes in after framing. We look at framing as the long pole in the tent because it's going to take up 30 to 45% of your total cost of the home. It's something that takes up so much time and every other trade comes after it that if you're not on time with framing, you are losing time and money to rescheduling those other trades. So if you have your framing set to end on the 17th, plumber comes on the 18th, the electrician comes on the 19th, and then inspection on the 20th, if those don't line up perfectly, you might call your plumber, hey, we're two days behind because of weather. Can you come back out on the 19th? And that plumber might just say, hey, sorry, I'm booked solid that day. I've got you three weeks out now for that property. And suddenly you see this cycle of reshifting and reshifting the trades that, you know, as, as you had pointed out before, that is something that's very important to actually making sure everything's done on time, Zach. And so when you're rescheduling all those trades, that, that backup, that supply chain issue, whether you're waiting on converters, whatever it might be, if they can't schedule properly, you are just out of luck as a home builder. So that's where the value proposition from the time perspective comes in. When they know that they are getting a frame set delivered on the 19th, that framing is done on the 19th. So there is no mystery as to whether or not their plumber on the 20th can come out or whatever those dates might be. As far as the actual costs go, framing costs are pretty darn expensive, quite frankly. And you're looking at costs that really can stack up pretty quickly. So even if they're paying, you know, let's call it a, a 8% premium on, on the actual materials to have us frame their home, if you're looking at the actual benefit there for us, our margins, because we're buying exactly what we need to, thanks to the software that enables us to know exactly what our cut list should look like. We're literally looking at anywhere from a 30 to 48% margin set, which is also pretty nice. But for the actual builder, they're looking at a total cost change. And this, by the way, is not just, you know, Brent making up money numbers. This actually comes from several studies that have been done both by the NAHB and by the University of Denver. But we're talking about a 30% reduction in the cost per house, a 30% reduction in the cost per square foot. And then you can be looking at anywhere from a 50 to 60% increase in homes per month able to be framed by that builder. Therefore, the value prop to the actual builders and working with a panelized system like ours is that they are actually saving a huge sum of money. And each builder has their own priorities there, right? When you talk to different types of builders, I talked with one large builder that builds a ton of homes in America in the top five, and they will tell you that, yeah, 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 speed is cool. That's great that we can put it up in a day. We care more about the inspection. They love us because they can look at the actual inspectability and know they're going to pass that inspection every every time. Whereas a different builder also in the top five will tell you, no, 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 no. I just need to line up my trades every time. The speed is what matters to us most. So it's all about really being able to enable different aspects of that build because it is such a complex process. And there are so many moving factors uh, that framing really can set you up for success or set you up for failure, depending on what methodology you're using. I'm thinking about the, the comparison or the analogy between Bitcoin, who's trying to claim that they're better at transacting than credit cards. However, then we wonder why aren't credit cards adopting blockchain or adopting uh, Bitcoin for their transactions? And then we realize that their scale and, and just the performance is not even close. So why aren't the Lenars and the DR Hortons or will they 
be implementing your your robots, your model to to uh, assemble frames and deliver them on site, or what's happening there? Yeah, so I can personally tell you that both DR and Lenar and Pulte and Meritage and uh, Taylor Morrison are all adopting this technology right now. Uh, I actually was just at a big conference down with uh, Sid Kitson of Kitson Partners out of Babcock Ranch. He was kind of showing off the collaboration that he's done there with more sustainable building practices and also with more, what I'll say, resilient building practices, especially for the Florida markets. And all of the builders were there with their, you know, their executive teams talking about how they are already adopting any type of technology that speeds up that framing process. They want that home shell as quick as possible. They want those keys handed over as quickly as possible. And I guess, you know, not to move ahead, you know, on your podcast, so to speak, but something that I think I've definitely changed my mind about is when we got into this industry in general, I heard a lot of people, like especially, you know, from the the investor side of the house, say, oh, well, construction, it's anachronistic, right? It's it's slow to change. It won't, the last, the, what's the running joke? The last time they adopted innovation was the invention of the nail gun. Ha ha ha. And we all chuckle. Realistically, that's just not true. The building and construction industry has tried over the last generation to adopt all new technologies, and they are, including the bigs like DR and Lennar, investing gigantic sums of money into robotic technology, into software technology, into companies like ours that really make a huge difference in their bottom line over time. The issue has come, and I think that joke comes from the lack of adoption writ large, it's just been kind of a Wild West culture with technology companies. And frankly, and I don't mean to pass judgment, but I see a lot of these technology companies not looking at the actual culture of construction and the way they do business and just trying to impact their will and their way upon the building industry as a whole. And that just doesn't work out too well, quite frankly. And the, you know, you guys know this well, that construction and real estate have their own sets and parameters and technology should be adapting to that, not trying to get them to change their, their whole models. And when they've done that, they've created this huge gap in, in understanding and shared perspective. And they've also kind of just left behind a wake of mistrust from hawkish financial practices of people just trying to, you know, do what I call the BIM cycle, right? CEO of a building company goes to this, you know, let's say the International Builder Show. They see some BIM company. It's going to change everything and revolutionize all. And so they just go and they say, hey, I'm going to hire a CIO. Hey, CIO, go implement this BIM. And then the BIM in no way models their practices, in no way allows their onboarding process to have the change management culture necessary steps to build towards that. In two years, the implementation is a total failure. The CEO blames the CIO, fires that person, and then goes back to the International Builder Show, sees the next shiny object, and the cycle continues, and the mistrust builds. You know, 100 to 200 years ago, machines took away the importance of our muscles with industries and automations, and now machines and robots are replacing our brain power which is a fascinating time to be alive. But Brent, if you had a collaboration superpower, what person, dead or alive, would you choose to do a partnership and why? Boy, well, first of all, I think one of the podcast. I think it was the most recent one, someone mentioned Mel Brooks. And golly, that sounds tempting, just for the simple fact that no one knows what Blazing Saddles is anymore. But for me, it's got to be Wild Bill Donovan. Great story of child of Irish immigrants turned super lawyer. He is the father of the OSS and the modern CIA. And he saw a vision for the importance of intelligence and the importance of really understanding the entire problem set that was being posed by Hitler before many people did. But the reason I would really love to collaborate with him is he is like the absolute embodiment of discipline, focus, and work ethic. And I am a big believer that when you can find people that are that discipline, that understand the need to have good discipline in their practice, 
focus on a goal and really put in the work to get it done, you can be genuinely inspired. So I, I would have loved to have met him personally and would love to work with him uh, if, if all rules were off and I could bend time in life. Wonderful. Pretty good answer. By, by far. Wow, Bill, uh, just plugged, uh, also an alum of Columbia University. You're darn right. You're darn right. Good old boy from the from the Western New York making good over there. Brad, did, did your accent just change? Yes, it did. So truth be told, my father's a doctor. My mother is like a business superhero. And so I spent a lot of time with my granddaddy, who was originally from Tennessee. You mean grandpappy? Uh, yeah, yeah. He was, he was more, uh, more, I guess, a uh, uh, Southern Tennessee. So it wasn't quite that deep. But my, uh, my father and mother both pointed out to me as a young child that if I kept that Southern accent, People might judge me differently. So my mother had a Southern accent when she was growing up and her father, who after World War II started an agribusiness company and he developed a, and this is by the way, if you want the tangent of all tangents, I can tell you about him because his life is just unreal weird. But he started the first scientific sharing agreement between the US and the USSR with then science minister Mikhail Gorbachev because Mikhail Gorbachev was obviously from the plains. He was a farm boy that made good. And he wanted to enable better growth of wheat for all the people that were starving in what was then the, the more Western half of Russia. Obviously, the, the government, the U.S. government was heavily involved because it was a, the Cold War and they were watching it. But they had to move up to Minnesota from the south to make sure that he could grow wheat, this very short stock, fully fruiting wheat in a cold environment like Minnesota. And so my mother moved to Winona. And the best memory she has of those first couple of weeks was her teacher calling her to the front of the class and embarrassing her by asking her to say certain phrases like, put that over there. And my mother would say, put it over there. And, you know, everyone in their Minnesotan accents, quite ironically, would laugh at my mother. And she was just, just decimated by this event. And so they taught me as a young boy to speak with a non-regional dialect so that people would not be as judgmental and judge me right off the cuff so that I could actually engage in some, some conversation. But I will totally admit when a under duress of combat or just trying to have a little fun, it definitely reverts to Southern right quick. And uh, there's nothing I can do about that. That's just, you know, first 10 years of your life are formative. What can you do? I want to have a few stats about, because I wasn't familiar with this, with this bloke, Wild Bill Donovan, and he most certainly would have been a Buffalo Bills fan, uh, but I don't think the Buffalo Bills existed when he was born, but he was born in Buffalo to Niagara, transferred to Columbia, then went to Columbia Law, and then he did a bunch of, as you mentioned, super lawyer stuff in various administrations. He was the U.S. attorney. He was the assistant attorney general. And then, as you mentioned, had a decorated career kind of founding the uh, modern intelligence apparatus that we know today. Yes, just just an incredible visionary with an amazing work ethic. Like, He's a man, right? Like fallible dude. I know he had a ton of affairs. I know he had, you know, some personal shortcomings. And so I, I don't want to make light of that. But his his patriotism and dedication to the craft of just getting things done is, is something that I wake up every day. Uh, the more I studied him as a youth and then uh, especially as adults, there's there's nothing like that feeling of waking up and feeling behind. And the ghost of Wild Bill will always haunt me in the sense that no matter how hard I work, I'm a step behind him. And that's a good thing. That motivates me every day. That's how I feel about Mel Brooks. Oh, well, <laughs> it could be wise. That's that's fantastic. Love it. Brent, where can our listeners find you and learn more about BotBuilt? Uh, they can go to www.botbuilt.com on Al Gore's internet whenever it's working. And otherwise, <laughs> they can contact me directly with brent at botbuilt.com. 
or else they can check us out on LinkedIn or come to any of the myriad uh, housing events that we typically find ourselves at and just come up and say hello. We're always wanting to talk about innovation, always wanting to talk about how we can help enable really the workforce do what they need to do in a much safer and better environment. Brent Waras, CEO of ButBuilt, revolutionizing housing construction with flexible robots. Brent, so much for coming on to Tangent Tank today. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really do appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning in to Tangent Tank, solving the housing crisis. Don't forget to follow, rate and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This series is edited by Daniel Mora and produced by me, Edward Cohen. Remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.